Hello. Hello. This is Joya Italiano. And this is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to No But That's a Thing. A podcast where we talk about the science ideas that are contained in sci-fi movies. Yeah, neither of us are experts in any of these things, but we care about them and we feel like we can make it interesting for you. So we Googled some stuff after watching a movie and here we go. Here we go. Are you guys ready to escape? From New York? It sounds like they're ready. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we watched Escape from New York. Had you seen this before? You'd seen this before. I saw this when I was in high school, but I had previously seen Escape from L.A., oh, the God. terrible sequel from the 90s, <laughs> which is a fascinating movie on right. like a terrible movie level. But like, it's kind of interesting because this was made in 1981 and was kind of a response to Watergate. Right, exactly. And like a look at how people saw New York City's crime. Should we take a listen to the trailer? Absolutely. New York. 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control. They think. I'm going in. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. So that happened. Yeah, it's a it's a fun time. I really like more than anything like the first half of the movie yeah. because the second half like I want it to be an escape a prison escape movie, mm-hmm. but instead it's just like Kurt Russell shooting his way through to the president and then getting out of there. It kind of has this RoboCop vibe for me, this dystopian future, the crime, the mm-hmm. you know, the corporate greed, the weird government involvement, all of mm-hmm. those things are cool. But then really it's just like, but this is really the story of Snake. Right. Snake Plissken, who's <laughs> yeah. actually a guy that James Cameron knew. Wait, like, really? Yeah, it's, obviously he wasn't like a guy with an eye patch who had to, you know, with the snake save the, tattoo po- on his chest. the president. Yeah. But no, he knew, like, it's like he knew a guy who knew a guy whose name was Snake Plissken and had a snake tattoo. <laughs> Tattooed, and he was like a tough hombre, I yeah, guess. Yeah. And so uh, that was the basis of the character. Well, but. I did read that James Cameron like did some matte paintings for the background of this movie, which yes. is pretty cool. Like, or, I'm sorry, yeah, not James Cameron, John Carpenter, oh, obviously. Uh, yeah. But I forget because James Cameron was involved in this movie. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's another JC. One of the things that I JC. think is, is cool about the special effects in this movie is that they have like this CG wireframe looking thing in the beginning as he flies into New York. The way they shot that was that it was actually too expensive to do the wireframe CG. Uh And so they put like white tape along a miniature model of New York City and then used a black light and just shot actually the thing to make it look like it was a wireframe. They like it out and then just shot above. Yeah, and it like totally reads to me as the CG wireframe. But then when you look at it again, you realize like it is a model and they did shoot that. And it's so weird to think of like it was cheaper to do that to get the CG effect. Right. My have things change yeah because they wall off the city and basically let the prisoners go crazy i was reading about this crazy prison in el salvador which works pretty much the same way Mm -hmm. where the guards are too afraid to go in because the prisoners are that scary what el salvador has the highest murder rate in the world wow the average in 2015 was one murder every hour oh my god In 2012 to 2013, there was like a 15-month truce between the two major gangs of San Salvador, which are the MS-13 and the Barrio 18 gangs. Are these like drug cartels or what? These are like giant gangs, like the Crips or the Bloods kind of thing. Sure, sure, okay. And it's actually, the way they started 
was there was a civil war in El Salvador in the 80s mm-hmm. and a lot of people fled to L.A. And they picked up kind of like the gang culture and gang mentality. And then in 1992, the Civil War ended and they went back to El Salvador and like brought with them. Oh, my God. The whole kind of culture of that. So it's guarded by the army on the outside. And in the inside, the prisoners are free to do whatever they want. They have like a bakery in there. They have a hospital that's staffed by prisoners. There are 2,600 inmates in there. And the prison was built for 800. Oh, are there so, a lot of murders in the prison, do you know? I would imagine. I would imagine, although because this prison is only for the MS-13 gang, uh-huh. I don't know how many are actually, you know, because they, they kind of don't kill their own right. kind of thing. That's, that's strange that you would like with the with La Cosa Nostra the mafia, this is mm-hmm, like this yeah. weird honor code of just right. like, well, because, you know, if it's all out chaos all the time, I mean, even if you're a mob boss, you're like, I want to feel mm-hmm. comfortable to eat my spaghetti right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, you got to trust your closest friends, that is I guess. wild. So then the guards just stay outside and they can't even really go in. Yeah, I mean, the prisoner to guard ratio is 50 to 1. That's ridiculous so they're like no we're not going inside but there was a photographer who went inside during the 15 month truce in 2012 and they have these unbelievably intricate tattoos that are all over their body that is like they're fascinating to look at if anybody wants to look up ms13 body tattoos you can kind of see the design of the ms all over the place they're really cool looking i want to find that right now but this photographer was safe while inside the prison because he had been invited in by the gang bosses Oh, wow. It's like face tattoos. It's all over the place. And they're really well designed. Yeah, they're beautiful. But I, I think. Yo, I just got a tattoo for my 30th birthday on yeah. my shoulder blade. And that hurt like a biatch. Like, you know, and all, <laughs> all I could do the whole time is just sit there and kind of meditate on my life and be like, why am I doing this? Yeah. I couldn't imagine doing that on my skull or like your nose. I know. <laughs> well, that's one of the many differences between myself and an El Salvadorian. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, there's a couple of differences between the that's two. That's the only Real yeah. big one. The, right. The thing that gets me are the like mustache tattoos. Yeah. Because I'm like, wow, that would hurt. Oh, like on the mustache. Yeah. You can I was see like, it, is like, that a thing? Like, it looks like a mustache, but uh, like, when you look closely, it almost looks like a signature. Oh, okay. Body art, am I right? I had looked into our their walled off cities is that even a thing is the idea of walling off a city that was once populated yeah right and i found this kowloon walled city of hong kong it's traced back to the song dynasty from which lasted from 960 to 1279 and it was set up as basically an outpost to manage the trade of salt the original fort was built on a slope and consisted of a plot measuring about 210 by 120 meters that's 690 by 390 feet the stone wall surrounding it had four entrances and measured four meters that's 13 feet so it was really tiny the dozens of alleyways were often only like one to two meters wide so that's like three to six feet wide so that i mean yeah talk about fucking claustrophobia oh yeah a typical unit where people were living was 250 square feet that's incredibly small it's incredibly small the walls were about 15 feet thick thick yeah that's a thick ass wall. It's a wall. thick wall, but not that tall of a wall. That's like three times as thick as the fucking alleyways. Right. I know. It's like, so again, I know that it was like a military fort and a military right. outpost. You know, long story short, a bunch of colonialism and imperialism on behalf of the British. And eventually it became an enclave after the new territories were leased to Britain by China in 1898. But then it didn't really do much except for offer British or Western tourists a chance to go there and be like, it was actually hmm. called, quote, Chinese Town in a 1915 map. So, not Chinatown. No, Chinese Town. <laughs> so the British could be like, ah, oh, and here we are in Chinese Town. Which is a walled off 900 right. foot by it was 600 a, yeah. foot 
area? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, huh. But then eventually they, they started building up. Its, its population increased dramatically following the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong during World War II. From about the 1950s to the 1970s, it was controlled by local triads, and it had high rates of prostitution, gambling, and drug abuse, mm. as we saw even in Escape from New York. Then from 1973 to 74, there were more than 3,500 3, police raids that resulted in over 2,500 arrests and over 4,000 pounds of seized drugs. Whoa. Yes. And then after that point, the gangs started, you know, their power started waning. And by 1987, the, the Walden City was 6.4 acres square were they so like building grown. new walls to, yeah like okay. and eventually they they expanded out because they realized like this is insane but then you know when you think about thirty-three thousand people being crammed into that it, yeah. it doesn't matter how high thousand yeah it's insane my god so, so then in January 1987, the Hong Kong government announced plans to demolish the city. And then there was like this crazy eviction process, right? So people that had been there this whole time, oh, they kicked man. them out. So And then demolition actually began in March of 1993 and was completed in April 1994. Where do you kick all those people out to? I like, don't know. There's 30-something thousand of them? A lot of people. Wow. And then they... I mean, it sounds like they at first were trying to be like, come on, don't you want to go? <laughs> yeah. But then eventually they had to just straight up yeah. throw people out. Much like we see even with like... Extreme Real estate development. development here, yeah, it'll they'll yeah. like push like out a City. homeowner or yeah. or will like first offer everybody in the area like a good amount on yeah. their home, and then it becomes like one holdout, yeah. and they got to deal with them. And... Exactly, a little bit United Airlines esque, oh right? I'm oh just boy. being, but then now, so it's a city park basically. It opened in 1995, ah. and since then, it's just sort of. not memorial in the sense that anything crazy happened there, but they have some elements of like one of the South gate entrances and that kind of thing to, you know, like remember a time in the same way that there's like the New York city, like the tenement museum, right? We're able to see Uh the kind of shit that people used to live in the kind of squalor. Yeah. 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 I just thought that was wild. And they evicted like 30,000 people and put up a park. Yeah. So they, they paved, I guess people put up a park. (laughs) Parking lot? No. There's probably a parking lot attached to the park. I, I, for the tourists? Yeah. It's an escape movie, and I was looking into escapes from Alcatraz and things that have happened involving that wonderful prison. Right. In 1962, three prisoners chiseled away the moisture-damaged concrete from around the air vents in their cells Okay. and were able to get into an air vent. They were using like spoons and forks, and they used an accordion to mask the sound of this during the music hour oh, that they my were allowed. God. They made fake walls out of paper mache, and they made fake heads out of paper mache. How that they get they the fucking paper the mache? This is like one of the most complicated escape plans, escape yeah. plans ever. And yeah, well, they homemade it using like dirt and concrete from the walls. They fucking MacGyvered the They shit MacGyvered out the hell out of it and used like old newspapers and stuff and then found a way to like paint it so that it and got like fake hair that they had like wow. collected over a long period of time. The escape route went up through the roof, but they had like also replaced rivets on obstacles further down the line over time. Like each night they would go in and they would go further and they would start chiseling away at right. that next part. And they replaced the rivets with soap uh-huh. that looked like rivets. Oh, my God. Then they collected 50 raincoats from other prisoners and stuff to tie together to create a life raft. Did they know? Do you think it was like a conspiracy? Like they knew why they were collecting the raincoats or were not really there sure? There are some prisoners who were aware, Probably. some not. But like they were really quiet about God, this for the most part. how much planning did this take? That's this crazy. This took months, maybe years. Yeah. 
So there were supposed to be four escapees, but one of them, like, they moved up the timeline to, like, earlier in escape than originally planned. And one of them just, like, couldn't chisel through the extra wall stuff in time. And by the time he, like, got up to go to the escape, they had already left the other three. Officially, the three of them drowned in the, quote, cold waters of the bay. But there were sightings of the men for years after that. Really? Friends and family received unsigned postcards and messages. I don't know what these folks did. I don't know if they were murderers or what. I murderers, assume they, yes. Yeah, I'm sure they weren't very good people. No. But to think about the planning and the, the tactics of getting out, oh but then God. let alone having to deal with the water. Mm-hmm. It's like by that point, as much as I believe in justice, I'm also like, dude. <laughs> you worked for it. You arts and crafted your way out. Yeah, and so the case is going to remain open until their 100th birthdays because they, they never found their bodies, even though they like think that they didn't make it. There are like reports that there might have been footprints along the beach, uh, oh like this God. one specific part where the current would have taken them. Mythbusters did an episode on this, and they found that it was totally plausible that right. this escape would have happened. And actually, the movie Escape from Alcatraz starring Clint Eastwood is all about this, and it's a great movie. Well, we might actually do that movie maybe. at some point. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Because I, I didn't know about that. I think I'd maybe heard about it in passing or yeah, something, this or is like a, very it's casually. A, it's a crazy story. It was like these two brothers, and right. at the mom's funeral, these just... two tall, strange-looking women showed up. Oh, my God. But then, then like left pretty quick. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's fucking wild a couple of decades earlier also on alcatraz there was another incident that they called the battle of alcatraz Mm -hmm. where there was a small riot where a couple of guys got into like the armory Mm -hmm. and they got a few handguns and the guards wound up locking down the cell block and just firing into the cell block for two days what just over and over again like firing squad style like bombarding the cell block and when they went in all three of them were dead I just imagine if that were done today, on day two of shelling the cell block, like the way the news would be reporting on this and like how they're handling. It seems a little overkill now. It's, yeah, well, because they had guns in there and they didn't. I guess at that point when you're just like, dude, this is an all out desperation moment. Yeah, they had control control. of the cell block and they just needed to make sure that like when they went in, they weren't going to get killed. Yeah. So that was maybe overkill. Yeah. But, (laughs) whoa. That's my patented wrap-up, but wow. But, I mean, like, wow. We're talking about walled-in cities and, you know, prisoners overtaking the establishment and all of that, but I was really focused on eye patches. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, he's got a sick eye patch. He's got a sick eye patch. Well, first of all, the eye patch was Kurt Russell's idea. Let's be clear about Uh that. Snake Plissken was not originally written with an, an eye patch on, but Kurt what? Russell, yeah, but <laughs> Kurt Russell was like, "This is gonna case. add an edge." I mean, it does. It does make him a super iconic character. It most certainly, like, there is nothing more badass. Like, oh my god, that guy's been through some shit than like an eye patch yeah. and like a grizzly scar or yes. something like that. Yeah. So I was talking about like the history of eye patches, and of course, in certain contexts, like if you actually lose an eye, that seems like a practical reason to no have way that. To... Right? We didn't have prosthetics or glass eyes necessarily. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that aircraft pilots, for example, might use an eye patch to be able to see both the bright lights below, mm-hmm. like the bright lights of the city below the aircraft, uh, but then also to be able to see the dimly lit. So the um, eye under the eye patch is constantly at like a higher level of dilation. You can see in the dark. Yeah. And then you lift it up and you, you'll like look around and be like, oh. Right. And because it, the, the idea is that your eye takes time to adjust. So mm-hmm. instead of having to, I That guess, makes sense. Yeah. That <laughs> like makes a lot of sense. one eye going here, one eye going there. It seems like you'd want to at least like switch it up, you yeah. know, like balance it out. Like now the left eye is going to be well, covered that, today. That makes me think about like the newest iPhones have 
have two cameras on the back of them and like right. one, they have different focal lengths mm-hmm. but maybe what they should be doing too is having them have different aperture yeah and that way you could have a much better like dim lit camera that only takes pictures in the very low light and then right i mean like even though pilots don't generally wear eye patches anymore because again <laughs> i think that has such a connotation yeah. that if you like if you like get on your southwest flight and he's like hello i'm captain johnson <laughs> yeah. i'm like ready to take you down i am captain pliskin right. and you get ready to snake <laughs> there's like, a snake on this I, plane after i escaped from la i went to pilot school <laughs> The FAA still does recommend, though, that a pilot should close one eye when using a light to preserve some degree of night vision, though. That's Um, interesting. Military pilots have worn a lead-lined or gold-lined eye patch to protect against blindness in both eyes in the event of a nuclear blast or a laser weapon attack. Oh. But now, also, they have more technology and certainly in the realm Mm. of night vision we have like night vision goggles or like night vision cameras and all that stuff so you don't necessarily need that but eye patches were the old night vision goggles what i also learned is the stereotype that pirates are always wearing eye patches (laughs) isn't really based in any kind of fact so that idea was popularized in treasure island the novel but maybe he just got the one letter off from pilot to pirate (laughs) oh god Oh, you're the worst. <laughs> the origin of this myth might be that pirates wore an eye patch over one eye in preparation for battle in order to have one eye adjusted to above deck daylight and the other adjusted to below deck darkness. That so that sense. same concept, but again, they're saying like that wouldn't really make that. It just it would just be too much adjustment if you're like mm. about to commandeer someone's ship. You don't want to be like, hang on, let me just simply pull Lift. this bad boy. It seems like you would be able to just. Go go with it, right. right? But I guess I had always thought that they were eye patches, much like the peg leg. Like you lost your leg, you lost your eye. Your mm-hmm. parent pecked out your eyeball. I don't know, <laughs> but they didn't have very good medical technology on those <laughs> ships. So well, this makes a lot of practical sense to me. What the eye patch? Yeah, that yeah. it would be that it wouldn't be just for like yeah. you're missing an eye, but for the dim light. It right, just, and like know. no naval combat manual or historical account of the era makes any reference to. Those kind of tactics. Okay. Like, old Bluebeard and his eye patch. Like, that didn't, wasn't, because Bluebeard was a real guy that everybody, <laughs> no, <laughs> Speaking of things that are not what people expected. <laughs> nice segue. Escape pods. Mm-hmm. Because the president in this movie takes an escape pod out of Air Force One, like, right as it crashes into New York. Air Force One, the real one, does not have an escape pod, at least right. officially. Do they exist? Escape pods don't really exist. Yeah. I think it's more of, like, a space idea. Uh-huh. But there are plans that I saw for the idea of a commercial flight's escape pod. And what that would be is the entire cabin that's inside the plane is, like, this fuselage within a fuselage that can then get shunked out of the back of the plane like the plane would like open up on in the back as it's going down and then the whole crew cabin fuselage slides out the back and is like carried down safely with a parachute parachute right okay so that makes sense it it does although i think it's like insanely difficult to engineer and if we were to be able to have these on every commercial flight you'd have to rebuild every plane right to have them be heavier and more expensive and that's not it's it's a little bit more complicated than an inflatable slide (laughs) yeah i would say so and the the other thing is like commercial flights are just about the safest way to travel so there isn't like that much of a right an impetus to do this now i don't recall did donald pleasance who plays the president in this by the way Mm -hmm. did he have a parachute i don't remember Remember if I don't like, remember. You kind of see a CG representation of his escape pod yeah. jump out of the plane 
thing right before it, so you don't really like actually see if he has a, a parachute okay. or not. Just because you always see these escape pods and they're just floating, and there doesn't seem to be any real like mechanism right. or physics as to how it could be possible. Well, that's a perfect segue into <laughs> my next part about this because I found a company called Cosmo Power who built an escape pod designed to survive tsunamis. Oh. And they called it NOAA. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does it stand for anything? I don't think it oh, does. no, they're just straight up they're like, you know what like, this is. You know, we're, this is <laughs> <deep>. <laughs> That's funny. It's like an oversized beach ball built to carry four people. It's just under $4,000. Okay. And right now it's basically just a big metal bar in the center okay. that you're supposed to hold on to as it like flies through a city what? in tsunamis so it's unclear how safe it really is right because like it doesn't even look like there's much padding in there right. at least with the current version just of it bopping around but i guess it's a better choice that because you get a lead time of a tsunami report because if you feel an earthquake there's likely to be a tsunami coming mm-hmm. and at least if you're near a coast you know in japan for example yeah which is where this company is. There aren't even seatbelts in there. Right. But I guess it's better than just having a tsunami come and through just your go place. Flying around. Yeah. So it's like watertight. I don't know where you would keep it in your house. Yeah. Like but... well, here's my Prius and right next to that is my skate pod. Um no <laughs> yeah, big deal. Yeah. Wow, that's mm, wild. Over with my panic room. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's not that dissimilar to the barrels that people used to use when daredevils used to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. That's absurd. People used to do this a lot. The original jackasses. Yes, yes. They were like the early daredevils. And just a wooden fucking barrel. Well, they had to like build special reinforced barrels Uh for it to not shatter. But like the first person to survive doing this was like, nobody ever needs to do that again. And then tons of people were like, I want to be famous for going over Niagara Falls. If they did survive, they would spend months in the hospital recovering, and then they would go on like a tour being like, here's me in my barrel, and they would get like paid right. for the rest of their lives to go around and be like, I, I went over Niagara Falls now, in that barrel. So I'm thinking, did they just break a bunch of bones? Uh, there's yeah. got to be some kind of brain damage. Yes, all of the above. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's know, insane. severe trauma. Did you ever like roll around in a tire like a really big fucking tire oh yeah you would like go like wind up down a hill or something and you would go really i mean talk about we were talking about the centrifuge on the last Mm -hmm. episode of just spinning like that that's one of the reasons too why i hate those like super what are those called tilt a whirl or this oh yeah like the cup of whirl or whatever yeah where you like stick to the wall because you're going so fast like all of that weird equilibrium shit sounds terrible that i grew up with called the turkish twist and it was uh, like, I mean, just, it sounds as brutal as right, it is. Exactly. Exactly. Turkish twist. Come on, mom. I want to go on that. It sounds <laughs> yeah. terrible. Everybody was puking oh after it. So, okay. So then people would see this. Oh my shit. This has been happening so long. People just seeing other people like hurt themselves and then get famous and And be like, I want to do that. I also want to break my bones. Yeah. Like I found a, a, one, of, one, one of the stories was the second person to ever go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. This guy, Bobby Leach. He spent six months in the hospital recovering. And he later died on a publicity tour in New Zealand from injuries sustained after slipping on an orange peel in the street. No, no, that's not real. That is real. Whoop, 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 whoop. Like that. <laughs> I wish it was a banana peel. I, I mean, like. I mean, not that I wish that the guy died. I'm really sorry, sir. But. <laughs> yeah, what? well, I mean, seriously. But that had to have been. Be, as, like as a result of the injuries he sustained and then maybe it was just like any any injury after this yeah like kill any you, small sir. fall and it was over That's i mean fucking insane another story was that this guy jesse sharp chose to attempt the feat in 1990 in a whitewater kayak without a helmet or life vest he was so confident he had dinner reservations downstream no 
No. Mm-hmm. I have a question that just kind of popped into my head. Have there ever been any female daredevils? The first one to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel was a woman. Really? Mm-hmm. Did you say that already? No. Wow, because I was going to be like, you fucking men, and you're so <laughs> egotistical, and you nope. have to prove your manlyhood. Oh, and she survived. Yes. No, she, oh my well, the God. first one to successfully go over in a was a, woman. was a woman. Yeah, I'm not going to make this a gender thing, but, <laughs> but it, I mean, it does. It, it does is an interesting fact, because you, do, question. you yeah. think of daredevils as like evil Knievels. And I think of jackass, and I mm-hmm. only think of like stoner surfer dudes, or yeah. skater dudes, Just rather. Bros. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, they're... they're there is something to be said about extreme sports and like the extreme adrenaline and I guess mm-hmm. feeling of accomplishment that you finish after that. <laughs> I just, I will never understand how that payoff is enough. Six months in the hospital versus someone being like, cool, man, you're the barrel guy. I don't know. I'm going to move on with my life now. I think something like 17 people have done it, yeah. gone over Niagara Falls in a barrel. It's and like survived, I mean. Fucking over a barrel, these guys, yeah, am they, I right? They got them right over a barrel. Science. Watergate inspired John Carpenter at least start writing this film. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it really came to fruition. Yes, it was made in 1980, released in 81, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I'm interested in the correlation between crime in the 80s because that was huge. I mean, it was pretty big in the 70s, but I feel like right yeah. in the 80s kind of pick it up, especially with the crack epi- oh, epidemic and all ab- that stuff. Absolutely. I mean, in the movie, it's kind of got the Warriors feel, if anybody's yes. seen that movie. And I looked into this famous story from 1984 involving this guy, Bernie Getz. Mm-hmm. He was on the New York subway and four thugs, if you will, yeah. came and started kind of intimidating him, telling him, give me $5 and stuff like that. And he opened fire on them. Bernie Getz did. Bernie Getz did. Whoa. And he surrendered himself to the police nine days after the shooting. And he was eventually charged with attempted murder, assault, reckless endangerment, and several firearms offenses. Uh And a jury found him not guilty of all charges except for one count of carrying an unlicensed firearm. Ah. So he was found not guilty even though he shot all of these people. people. Self-defense was the claim? Self-defense was the claim even though they hadn't actually assaulted him. This case became really famous because he was dubbed the subway vigilante Mm -hmm. in the press. And like people loved and hated him. And he basically came to symbolize the fear. Mm -hmm. And the subway was a symbol of the lack of ability to control any of the crime in New York. The argument that was made was that as a reasonable person, he was scared enough that he should pulled the trigger in that case. Now, may I ask, in terms of racial politics here, was he white? He was white, and they were black. Right. And there was a congressman who specifically said at the time, I think if it were a black man who had shot four whites, the cry for the death penalty would have been automatic. Hell yeah. I mean, I'm very mixed, and I know that this is a very difficult and uncomfortable situation Mm -hmm. because this is all pre-Giuliani, right? This is pre-stop and frisk and pre, you know, the really heightened awareness in terms of, like, police brutality and, you know, the unfairness there. On one hand, I don't think that he should have gotten off scot-free. Right. I don't think that you should murder people, even if you got mugged. Right. That doesn't give you the right to murder somebody. But he hadn't been mugged. They were intimidating. Right, exactly. Exactly. So they didn't even do that. And yet, because probably the, the heightened sense of fear like you said it just people people had their own personal hang-ups and their own baggage with it so it's hard to really be objective well this also is like cited as a contributing factor to the whole movement to really take care of the crime in new york Mm -hmm. that happened over the next 10 years but three years before the subway incident bernie getz was attacked in the canal street subway station by three youths in an attempted robbery they smashed him into a plate glass door threw him to the ground permanently injuring his chest and knee He was pissed off that the arrested attacker spent less time in the police station than he did. 
Whoa. And then the guy who was arrested was charged with criminal mischief for ripping his jacket. Oh, okay. Then he applied for a permit to carry a gun and was denied on the basis of like insufficient need. Uh-huh. So then on a trip to Florida, he bought a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson. Holy shit. So it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's no reason for him to have had that gun. There's no reason for it. I mean, if you've already been assaulted, mm-hmm. you're going to be on edge. And he was a guy who was constantly moving expensive electronic equipment uh-huh. around. So like having that on the subway with him, he felt like he needed to be able to protect himself. Right. And I'm thinking about the the comic book world, even Daredevil mm-hmm. that takes place in Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen is a generally the, the backdrop of it's a, a vigilante. lot of the, yeah, and it's yeah. But it's all that kind of moral question of, no, we should let the justice system work. But we see that in many cases, the justice system is broken. The fact that he didn't even get off on like for, well, like didn't get manslaughter. Here's one of the details that's really damning for Bernie Getz, which is that after firing four rounds, he looked at one of them who apparently had not been shot yet and said, "You look okay. Here's another." Oh shot. yeah, I, I know this guy. No. Between 1966 and 1981, violent crime rates in the city had more than tripled. Yeah. And by the mid 80s, the city had a reported crime rate over 70 percent higher than the rest of the U.S. And yet, but what sucks about it is, you know, you take the Giuliani tactic and basically just like get all the homeless people off the street and prison people. They don't deal with the actual poverty and the social reasons as to why crime even results. And so instead you just have this weird, muddled, racially divisive tactic. Yeah. And I'm actually, I want to get into that next because in 1997, a man named Abner Luima, who was a Haitian, was assaulted, brutalized, and forcibly sodomized with a broken off broom handle by police officers in the New York City police precinct. This is a horrifying That's story. Disgusting. Luima and another guy basically got in the middle of a fight between two women outside of a nightclub. And the police were called. At one point, one of the police officers got sucker punched, and he thought it was Luima. Later on, he admitted that he was mistaken about that. They arrested Luima, beat him with nightsticks and police radios on the ride to the station. Then when he got there, he was strip-searched, thrown into a bathroom, and sexually assaulted with a broomstick, kicked in the balls while his hands were cuffed behind his back. Oh, my God. Apparently, the officer then walked through the precinct bragging that he had taken down a man that night. Sick. That's fucking sick. That's evil, man. That man, that police officer, his name was Officer Volpe. He originally pleaded not guilty, but halfway through the trial changed his plea to guilty. He confessed to sodomizing Luima, and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison without the possibility of parole. And it also ended in the largest police brutality settlement in New York City history, paying out $8.75 million to Luima. Oh, my God. Three million of that went to legal fees. It's And one of the things about this, first of all, he was hospitalized for two months. He needed three surgeries to fix his colon and bladder. Apparently, during the beating, they yelled, it's Giuliani time. Because Giuliani had just come into office as mayor, and he was going to clean up the city. And he was going to do it in a way that was really kind of unscrupulous and brutal. Oh, my God. And so these two stories, Bernie gets kind of illustrating the height of fear in crime-ridden New York in the Mm mid-80s. And then Abner Luima kind of signifying the beginning Mm. of the turnaround, but that turnaround being such a brutal time. Right. And then you have in the 90s in L.A., the Rodney King, and then the the subsequent riots. But again, it's like never fully addressing. It sounds like they at least tried to address the police brutality there, but now it's like, that shit doesn't happen anymore. The police always get fucking acquitted. It seems that way. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I mean, people were expecting him to get acquitted on this one, too. 
but it didn't but go it's that like way. When you're bragging about because it, because I think it went, you know, when he, I mean, it sounds like things were really clear. That's way before the world of body cams and all, and you know, oh, people, yeah, people before. taping and any of that kind of yeah. stuff. So there was really no accountability. And he was innocent. And he was innocent. I mean. Oh, God. I just, it makes me wonder, there's got to be some people that choose to be police officers because they have some kind of internalized rage. Yeah, I think it's, so. I mean, I, my uncle's a cop. I'm not trying to throw cops under the bus. Well, to further complicate your feelings about it, crime started dropping significantly, and by 2006, New York City had become one of the safest large cities in the right. U.S., ranked 194th out of 210 cities with populations over 100,000. Absolutely. And, you know, having lived in New York City, I acknowledge the importance of feeling safe on the I mean, street. I, I, we both lived in New York yeah. City after this 2006. Oh, yeah. Well, we're, you know, like, we're, we're youngsters. Mm -hmm. But I guess, you know, it's interesting talking to folks that are, like, dear friends of mine that are old, much older than me, and they... they kind of came of age in New York during the, the 80s and mm -hmm. the 90s and stuff. Mm -hmm. As much as it might be safer, there's a lot that's lost, according to them, because, mm -hmm. you know, they're thinking of, like, back in the CBGB days, right, the Lower right. East Side, there was so much culture The culture and all was this different, stuff. yeah. And it's like, uh, I mean, you know, you would like to be able to maintain the culture without the fear of violence and death right. every day. I think I remember reading in Freakonomics that one of the things was that abortion became legal in the 70s. Mm. And so a lot of people who may have been born and become criminals were like around the age of 16 to 18, mm. 16 to 18 years after mm. the crime in New York City started dropping significantly. Ugh. So there's a lot of different like ways of looking at like what caused the crime drop. And right. you can't argue that Giuliani had nothing to do with it. No, but, but gosh, I, I, I get a little bit facetious when I talk about New York City being kind of a shopping mall now. But again, mm -hmm. it's like, I would much rather that than just like, well, not a step over this pile of syringes yeah. and hopefully I don't get raped on the well, way Well, mostly we're not, you know, we're talking about specifically Manhattan too. Yeah. That's our experience. That's true. Exactly. We're, we're being very... Right. I, I know that I'm being surface level. I also understand that I've had a specific experience, but yeah. these kind of stories. It's a big place. Oh, yeah. man, that's heavy. Yeah, crazy shit. <laughs> well, yeah, this got a little bit heavy. I was going to try to end on that, the eye patch thing to be like, eye patches, am I right? But that didn't happen. <laughs> but I did look into, you're familiar with Banksy, right? The famous British oh, yeah. street artist. Yep. It, he Nobody knows who he is. He's very good at being sneaky. Although, didn't, I thought they might have like revealed his identity. I thought something. I heard something about that, and I when I saw saw that, I was like, I don't need to know who he is. Yeah, I don't want to know who he especially is. Especially if he's like, I just assume he's a guy. He's just some right. dude. Yeah, like I don't you, like anything. Any, what is it going to turn out? He's Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, exactly. Like, but what is interesting? So, so Banksy is obviously famous for doing a lot of politically charged street art and he recently opened up a hotel that's wedged up against the Israeli security wall that wraps around Bethlehem in oh. the Middle East in, in Palestine. That's interesting. Uh, it's a 10 room. It's called the Walled Off Hotel. It's built in the style of, of a British colonial club and all of its rooms look out onto the wall that surrounds Bethlehem and its upper floors actually stand eye to eye with the Israeli watchtowers that loom over parts of Bethlehem. It was, it was built in secret over a 14 month period. Like even Palestinian officials were surprised when it opened. How did I, I, that that's what to me I was like what the fuck do you mean they didn't well, know I guess the zoning laws are a little lax yeah exactly like how do you I, not, I don't know. or maybe they knew that something was being built but they didn't know that it was like Banksy's, Banksy's uh, West Bank themed West Banksy's yeah oh fuck you I can't believe I missed it <laughs> so angry <laughs> that was actually a character I came up with like I, 
I had I did this fake website years ago that was like a conspiracy website, and I had the guy's pseudonym be West Banksy. Oh boy, oh, you're too fucking clever for your own good. So even Banksy wasn't at the opening because you know he's he lives in secret. So mm-hmm. instead, there was a two page press release that described his vision for a quote three story cure for fanaticism with limited car parking. <laughs> he's just so cool, man. He's I just want to party with Banksy. Although he'd probably be really intense, maybe too intense. What if he's like the chillest guy in the world? He could be. I mean, he, they interview him a lot in that movie exit through the gift yeah, shop yeah I love that movie but the point of this this hotel is obviously is aimed at attracting foreign visitors to an area of the West Bank where they might not usually stay it also gives the Palestinian economy a boost he's you know all of the staff is going to be Palestinian folks oh, cool. the hotel opening is designed to coincide with the, the centenary of the Balfour Declaration so that was the declaration in 1917 by the British government in favor of a Jewish homeland Banksy says quote it's exactly 100 years since Britain took control of Palestine and started rearranging the furniture with chaotic results he goes on to say I don't know why but it felt like a good time to reflect on what happens when the United Kingdom makes a huge political decision without fully comprehending the consequences. So, you know, he he himself has had a connection with Bethlehem for over a decade, and he did, he did that mural, the picture of a dove with a piece strapped into a bulletproof vest. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, so that's that's one of his famous things. And so the hotel also, like, features a bunch of Banksy's new works. And oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I think it's really fucking awesome. So it, it's, really it's built cool. in the in area C of the occupied West Bank, meaning that Israelis are also able to come. So it's not a means of being like, uh-huh. take that, Jews. Right. You know, it's it's kind of just pointing out how ridiculous this whole thing is, right. the fact that they're still doing it. So I don't know. This is, again, one of those really complicated things, and especially, like, being an American and growing up being like, yeah, we're on Israel's side. That's just... That's just what we are. Like, that's sort of what right, I thought. Right. You know, that's... And I didn't really think about the complexity of the situation mm-hmm. and understand that these are all people. These are all just well, people that live in the same community. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad... I mean, I wish that it didn't take a very well-known Western artist to mm. bring attention to this and make it, like, a commercialized thing. But I'm I'm happy somebody is. That's complicated, but... Yeah. Thanks, Banksy. <laughs> Banksy. Oh, God! You're just nailing it today. <laughs> Science... I don't think I wrote down any favorite lines, did you? There were some good ones, but I don't recall. Lee Van Cleef, who's in this movie and is a fucking badass, originally was the bad and the good, bad, and the ugly. Ah. He has a great line that's just, I'm ready to kick your ass out of the world, which I just like that as a line. <laughs> It's but so just it's like, not, out of the world? Yeah. But the terrorist group that takes over Air Force One, is, they call themselves the National Liberation Front of America. Mm-hmm. And there have been a few National Liberation Fronts in history. Mm-hmm. One of the main ones was a South Vietnamese political organization intended to overthrow the South Vietnamese government and reunify North and South Vietnam. Because ah. this would have been soon after the Vietnam right, War. totally. So the National Liberation Front was something from Vietnam that was trying to unify God, North and South. we didn't even touch on Vietnam. I, yeah. God, this t- what a time, what a time. <laughs> what a time. I guess this happens with every generation or anybody that's just like, whoa, these rose-colored glasses I've been wearing. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been wearing them for a long time, but when I I would did not imagine when I was a kid, you know, born in 87 that it was like in the midst of all of this craziness with right. fucking Reagan and this is all after the Vietnam <laughs> yeah. War and Watergate and all of that shit. We came into the world at a very strange time. Yeah, we sure did. And we're even in an even crazier time. Yeah. Holy yeah. smokes. A couple of interesting, or at least one funny thing that I saw was the name Snake Plissken was changed to Hyena for the Italian release. What? <laughs> they were like, what's another spooky sounding oh, like, name? Like, my name's Hyena. Are there not enough snakes over there? I don't know what they were thinking. Those Italians Hyena are Plissken? Wide. Yeah, I'm like, 
hyenas laugh a lot, man. They're not. They're kind of That's annoying. Funny. They they don't actually like. They're not predators. They just like go in after and clean up. That's not spooky. Yeah. Anyway, and then it was changed to cobra in South Korea. Oh, at least yeah. that's a snake. Yeah. I get it. Oh, and then another thing I thought was cool is just that that Donald Pleasance, who played the president, he was a prisoner of war. Oh, really? He, yeah, he he. I don't know if it, it must have been World War Two. World War Two or Korean Korea, conflict. I think, yeah. But yeah, Probably so World he War actually II. wrote his own little backstory and like all because I was noticing I was like Donald Pleasance is really like he seems really spooked in this movie. Yeah. But he was he was doing some method acting, some Meister, oh, wow. Stanislavski to really dip into some That's of his cool, prisoner of war That's cool because I did think that his performance as the president was like I was like oddly of, nuanced. Exactly. I was gonna say it was like it was out of placingly good yeah. in relation to all yeah. of the other yeah. cheese ballness but yeah. <laughs> another tidbit is i i read that kurt russell tried to stay in character between takes uh-huh but he did take off the eye patch because fuck that because depth perception man yeah like oh my you're God. gonna go to the craft services table you're gonna grab yeah. the mustard instead of yeah, the ketchup exactly like uh, can i coleslaw <laughs> yeah. i just want i just want to eat that's so funny well, well, we've covered a lot today. That was, yeah. that was a hefty episode. We're not quite sure what we're watching next. Nope, as usual. But you can rate and review us on iTunes. Actually, we do. It's Contagion. Oh, yeah. We do. We already watched the next one. <laughs> this is the first time we yeah. actually know. Yeah. So we're doing Contagion next week. If you want to rate and review us on iTunes, please go ahead and do that. Actually, can, please do. Please, please do, do. <laughs> uh, And you can chime in on uh, comment boards on the website, nobutthatsathing.com. You can email us at nobutthatsathing at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at itsajoyamia, I-T-S-A-J-O-Y-A-M-I-A. And I am at Jeffrey Ekman. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Do it. See Have you guys a, later. Bye. Bye.